I watched all of the American one. I think I fell off. Um, yeah, I actually really like the seasons after Michael Scott leaves. Wow. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I was not expecting to, because the first time I watched it through, and then um, Michael Scott leaves, and then Will Ferrell is on for, like, three episodes, and I cannot stand him, and I... Honestly, I stopped watching about half an episode before he leaves because I was like, I can't do this. How long does it go on? And I fell off. And then I was telling my friend Darren and he was like, Kathleen, you were so close. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I don't know. Like the other characters kind of get to breathe a little more. And there's some like fun stuff that goes on. I really like Oscar. Oscar's probably my favorite character. And he hmm. gets like a little more screen time. And there's like a really messed up but good storyline between him and Angela um, Ooh, and the finale was really good like I got I was like I was not expecting to cry I got really emotionally invested in this okay. show in the last like four episodes I just <laughs> whoops <laughs> but yeah I would say after Michael Scott leaves like huh. it's definitely worth it it's less Less of that horrible cringe humor that is very Michael Scott. And That's why bit, I was never able to. I I can't. A little bit deal more like yeah. No, you're still like ah, these characters, but like there's it's just a little gentler. The, okay. I mean, is the whole purpose of The Office the cringe humor though? I don't know. I mean, whatever. You haven't watched the last season, <laughs> yeah, no, no, so fair yeah, it's yeah, supposed fair to enough, be fair kind enough. of just like soft but, office drama. Is how I've always seen it. Like, uh, see, I watched until uh, Pam and Jim. Oh yeah. Got together, and I felt like I was like the. The tension there's gone, and um, and then Michael Scott at that point I think was in a relationship, and I was like, wow, I just think everyone's kind of no, no, reached their ending. I don't it know. Gets, it like I don't know. I the way the Pam and Jim relationship actually develops after they're married is really interesting, and I think there's some okay. good conflict there, like because there's sort of like in the last couple seasons there's like themes of like Jim trying to move on to another job and it's going to uproot their family and Pam being like I do not want to move out of Scranton and sort of that like what do you give up and how much do you compromise mm. when you've like committed to being together and stuff like that it's I don't know I actually really like the later season so all right um so now that we've had Kathleen's office podcast <laughs> of characters <laughs> in romantic situations whose name is Scott Great segue. <laughs> Good, but I'm mad. Welcome to the Trade Winners. Today's episode, we are going to start our Scott pilgrimage. Thank you, yes. Kathleen, for that, by the way. <laughs> Thank you for not stealing my joke. <laughs> credit where credit is due. <laughs> I will cite my sources. Good. MLA format. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I'm holding up a sign right here, right here that has all the MLA format on that. Um, so we're going to read the first two volumes of Brian Lee O'Malley's Scott Pilgrim today, and then next episode we will just keep going. All the way to the moon. Truck on. Yeah, you guys didn't know Twice. this, but 
you just tuned into a podcast where we're going to start reading these comics right now. It's going to be dead air for a couple hours. With a little bit of a hum. Yeah. Once in a while. You can pretend you're looking over our shoulder, but it's a, it is a podcast. So you can't you see, see anything. anything. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's kind of like, you know, uh, it's a soundtrack for you reading it. So uh, at the tone, begin on page one. Beep! <laughs> Scott Pilgrim is dating a high schooler? What? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> okay, so we had a previous episode where we did a little biography of Brian Lee O'Malley. This is the, I think, the first time we've done a second episode from a book from a previous author that we've done before. Uh, let me think. Probably, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's probably true. So, if you want to know more about Brian Lee O'Malley, either check out our episode number one of the Trade Waiters or. Look on Google. That's gold on Google. He's got the answers. <laughs> Thanks for letting me off the hook, because I didn't really add anything more than what we would have talked about when we did Brian Lee O'Malley last time. No, no, here's the way you got to do it. Brian Lee O'Malley needs no introduction. Oh, oh, there you go. Perfect, yes. Brian Lee O'Malley needs no introduction. Brian Lee uh, O'Malley is this guy who and, makes comics and is worried that bread will make him fat. And Yes, and since uh, I feel like it's... I, I don't know the exact timing, but we've definitely been recording for a year or more. More than that. Yeah, yeah. and I just thought at this point, why don't we kind of revisit Brian Lee O'Malley and we'll look at his kind of his his big his big breakout success with Scott Pilgrim. It's an important CanCon series. Yes, and, uh, and an important series for comics as well. I think. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I would say that rereading this, I appreciate even more how much the city of Toronto is a supporting character in this work, and that relates to my character revealing question. Okay. Oh, okay. I had a character revealing question. I think you should save yours for next time. Okay. Because oh technically, okay. we sort of compromised here so that you can get okay three episodes. So this is my this is my pick. Whoa, whoa, my okay, episode. All right. Now. I'm sorry, I was unaware. I'm excited now. Everyone's gonna have to tune in next time because I, I, God, it's a cliffhanger. I, here, I just thought I was slacking off, and apparently, John's had it under control the whole time. <laughs> I mean, what else is new? We What's your just, question, John? We just, cut, we just cut this part right, and right, just right. act like you knew no, it the whole no, time. No, no, <laughs> this this fits with the the theme of animosity between friends. Let's go. Uh, okay, so my character reeling question is. Tell us about the first album uh, you ever owned. Oh, woof. I feel like we talked about this at Cloudscape the other night. Well, we haven't talked about it on the air. Mm, okay. Uh, that's okay. Um, I'm Kay Gross, and I can answer this because we were talking about this the other night, and it is not a good answer. Um, anyone who has ever spoken to me knows I have bad taste in most media. Um, and the first album I think I ever bought with my own money. Like, the first one I remember my brother getting was, like, The Arrogant Worms Live Bait. And then I remember buying Orange Cats Are the Very Best Friends, which is just, like, a novelty album <laughs> of, like, songs about cats. That is the most new answer, I think, yeah, you could have given. Yeah, I have an orange cat. So, um, yeah, we were really into novelty music. Like, really into novelty music. Yeah. Oh, no, you know, and maybe the second one after that was actually a Plum Tree album. Hmm, probably. Wow. Um, Very topical. Yeah, oh, it was, we're going to get into my long history of Scott Pilgrim. So. <laughs> Ooh, all right then. Uh, okay, so I'm Jeff Ellis, and the I'm going to go with the first three 
albums. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> the first album was no good. Uh, um, I don't think it would be worse think, than mine, yeah, though. I, I don't think yeah. anyone's Fair first enough. album was good. Okay. Children have no taste. Right. We didn't say which best album did you buy. Well, the first <laughs> that is the jewel of your collection. <laughs> the, the fr- I think the, I think technically speaking, the first album I bought was the Biodome soundtrack. Nice. I don't but, even know what that is. Um, but uh, but like almost immediately after, I added two more, and then that was all I had for the longest time, which was uh, Smash by Offspring and Nevermind by Nirvana. And I think that that kind of puts me squarely in the, like, musical kind of stylings of the protagonists uh, in this comic that we're about to read. Okay. I'll go next. I'm Jam. Uh, do you guys remember that, like, Publisher's Clearinghouse thing? Yes. Where you could, like, buy CDs for, like, a penny? My brother was on that. Oh, yeah. I was uh, on that twice. Terrible mistake. <laughs> anyway, I was 12. My first <laughs> CD was Ace of Base, The Sign. No regrets. Still really love Ace of Base. Come at me. But don't ask. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm Jonathan. Uh, the first album I ever owned was uh, when I was in grade six. I had a Weird Al Yankovic album. I can't remember which one it was, but it was one of his early ones, like first or second album, something like that. Uh, and then I didn't actually own any music again until like university. I like that. It's like, I got Weird Al, what do I need? Yeah, yeah. No, I don't know. I just wasn't into music for a very long time. Uh, and then I think the first, at least the first album that I got that was like a single group or a single band was Bare Naked Ladies. Again, I forget which album of theirs. It was one of their albums. But that was the, that was the time period is like, Bare Naked Ladies is a thing that everyone in Canada is listening to, so you're gonna buy that. <laughs> or else. <laughs> <laughs> it's the law. That's right. <laughs> Had to have your CanCon. Alright, so, um, Maybe we should talk a little bit about, uh, like, give us a little summary of the story, just in case you don't know Scott Pilgrim. If you don't know Scott Pilgrim, then there's going to be lots of spoilers here, but... Yeah, so we will be uh, going through the entire series, uh, but we are only going to spoil up to the first... No, you know what? Do we want to put a blanket spoiler warning? Yeah, just have spoiler. read all sure. six books by the time you start. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, we're I'm mostly, probably going to mention stuff that happens yeah, later on. Yeah, obviously. we're mostly talking about books one and two, but there's a good chance we're going to spoil the whole series. Yeah, yeah. they're they're a quick read. You can read all six. Yeah, come on. <laughs> uh, all right, six come for breakfast. <laughs> Ooh, I, I no, you didn't. I think I've read two of these <laughs> volumes before I came in here today. Honestly. <laughs> Okay. All right. What's Scott Pilgrim about? Uh, Scott Pilgrim is this guy who is like his life is going nowhere. He's not accomplishing anything. Doesn't have a job. Uh, he's dating a high schooler. Uh, we'll get into that, I assume. We will. <laughs> uh, he's in a band that's not any good, and the story basically follows his romantic relationship with Ramona Flowers, who is uh, an American Amazon.ca delivery girl. And then he has to fight her seven evil exes while playing lots of music along the way. Yeah, we should also mention that, like, Ramona can travel through subspace highways, which are these weird sort of, like, spaces that exist through people's heads and stuff. I mean, that's just for our Canadian listeners, obviously. Our American listeners are very familiar with the subspace highways. highways. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, So she... Scott, the first time Scott sees her, she's literally walking through one of his dreams, and then he sees her in real life, and it's like, oh, what? 
<laughs> um, so I think all of us had read Scott Pilgrim before rereading it. Oh yeah. yeah. Yes. This comic was very, very important to me when I was a teenager. Like, I think I started reading it when I was 12 or 13. I distinctly remember the fourth volume coming out because that was the fall of grade nine for me. And I went down to the Guiling and I went and got it like right after it came out. So, like, I grew up with this comic. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember this comic coming out as well. I remember that uh, it made quite a splash and quite an impact. Uh, I started hearing about it, I think, around book three. So I borrowed the books from someone else, I think, and then I started going in on release day for books four, five, and six. And I remember that distinctly, where it was like there was a lot of hype. Uh, and what really struck me is that at the time, it seemed really groundbreaking and just completely different from anything I'd read. Like, it had a very distinct tone. And what's funny to me is that even going back and rereading these books, I still feel that way. Mm. There is still nothing quite like this book. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I don't know. These comics were, like, kind of... It's going to sound really hokey, but, like, as a teenager, reading these made me feel like I can definitely make comics, too, and I'm going to get serious about it. Mm. And... Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think anyone can look at anything objectively, but I super can't look at these objectively. Because <laughs> they're so, like... Like, you know that's... There's a scene in these books where Nia's like, My name's Knives Chow, and I'm a Scott-holic. And, like, <laughs> that was kind of me in, like, middle school, high school. Like, how much I love these books. I cannot tell you how many times I've read them. So, like, rereading them was kind of like, if you haven't... Because I haven't read them since I was a teenager, and I'm 23 now, which is how old Scott is in these books, which is kind oh, of, like, mm. interesting. But it's kind of like when you haven't heard a song in a really, really long time, and then it's playing, and you're immediately transported back to, like, the last time you heard it, and also you kind of suddenly know all the words. Mm. And, like, it's just like, oh, mm. God. Like, that's yeah. kind of what reading it is yeah. like, because I haven't read it since I was yeah. probably, like, 16 or 17. Well, that's interesting, because I um, actually just double-checked the publishing date, and, like, I was 24 when hmm. this came out. I don't think I actually read it until I was maybe 26 or 27, and it's funny because I think I remember coming to Cloudscape and hearing both of you, uh, John- Jonathan and Jam, like raving about uh, <laughs> like this book, Scott Pilgrim. Huh. Seems and then by the time I like picked it up and started reading it, I, I dovetailed right into like the last book coming out. So like everyone around me was like, "Man." I've been waiting like a year for this book to come out. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I just read all of it. And now here's the last chapter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. These books hit at a very interesting point in the comics world where it feels like it was sort of the culmination of the manga boom, where there was this period of time when manga was suddenly being imported into North America and was suddenly accessible to a wide Mm. range of people. And everybody was reading manga. And, uh, but nobody here was publishing manga books. Mm-hmm. This is basically properly. one... Properly. Yeah, properly. <laughs> Not stuff that was made here, I mean. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. okay. There so were, well, was, I mean, we yeah. were talking about this a little bit in the Shadow Eyes episode, where mm-hmm. there was... Uh, this was around the time where Tokyopop was an imprint, and there yeah. were a few graphic novels coming out from Tokyopop, but it was it was probably around that time that Tokyopop was starting to disintegrate. Minx was trying to get off the ground and mm-hmm. also disintegrated probably a little bit later on in this series, and this is an mm-hmm. Oni imprint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this is back, like, I don't know, I think Oni is not necessarily publishing things that are my jam anymore, but, like, back when I was first starting to get into comics, like, I found Scott Pilgrim through the ad in the back of Blue Monday, which Brian Lee actually lettered, but it's um, China Clugston's 
comic and then like I used to absolutely be like what are the ads in the back of the Oni Press books and just like look for them at the library because <laughs> they were all like really my jam <laughs> at the time and they've shifted their focus on what they're publishing more now so like there's some stuff from them that's like oh it's not really my jam anymore but you know you do you yeah um but yeah it was just like oh what's in the back here I will just pick out these titles, see mm. if they have them at the public <laughs> library. Um, I want to say, uh, I want to put a little bit more context in what you were saying as well, because I do think I want to go, I, like you say about being transported, uh, I was transported back to that period of time for comics and its history. Mm. Uh, mm. And I think not only was it the peak of the manga boom, I think you've hit that as well, but Scott Pilgrim to me represents almost the birth of indie viability. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is not an indie title, so it is a Oni Press title, but it has a very indie aesthetic, uh, and it has a very indie voice. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it paved the way for a lot of other indie titles to have a much wider readership and wider acclaim and success. Like, it really changed the way comics could be for Mm -hmm. me. Like, Mm -hmm. the way, the fact that it was so successful changed the potential for different types of comics. Absolutely. Like, it's also indie, but also fun. Like, it kind of bridged the gap between indie and manga. Mm. It's like, it's a little of both. Because I think a lot of indie stuff before this was very sort of, like, very indie. Like, not the kind of thing that your average reader off the street could easily get into. But this is like, it's a fun story. It's like, got, like, fun art. It's easy to read. It, like, hits all the things that manga would do. Except... It's made by a North North American creator in a North American setting with like North American stories. Like this had this had everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and I think the fun is an important thing. It's it's true because I think that um, you know I was at a period where I was starting to dabble in independent comics and like diversify what I was reading. But definitely a lot of the original indie stuff that I was finding was just like. It's this black white comic I wrote about how I'm depressed all the time, and like, <laughs> you know, it, it was just like a lot of it was just really dark autobiography stuff was kind of what you found in the late '90s in independent, and this is sort of turning all that on its ear and just doing something really unconventional. And I have to say, like, I mean, I have really fond memories of reading it, and I definitely felt the manga influence and the video game influence, but I think reading this a second time, uh, I think part of this is Trade Waiters, because now, through your recommendations, Angela, I've we've read a whole bunch of, like, real, like, traditional manga, <laughs> and so, so reading, and reading Scott Pilgrim again, I'm like, oh, wow, like, this is totally borrowing from those works and I was I had a moment where I just started going to the back cover and re- gonna go read it in reverse. I was like, no wait, no, it, this is a North American book. Oh, I'm so um, touched, Jeffrey. <laughs> I'm so touched that my weeb history has made such an impact in your life. <laughs> yeah, no, and um and maybe it's because I played more video games, but just like the video game references in here too. I love it and uh, I forgot how much like fourth wall breaking they I did, too. I love that. I mean, <laughs> you know, like, that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about this comic, like, when I originally read it and then also rereading it, is, like, oh, the fourth wall breaking. I love fourth wall breaking. I think it's really fun, and I think it's especially fun in this series. Like, I always loved all the little text boxes that would, like, <laughs> pop up next to, BP, next to people like Scott Pilgrim, 23 years old, rating. Awesome. <laughs> um, and, like, you know, there's parts later on where, like, 
they'll say something and Scott will be like, oh, that's a story for another time. Maybe volume three will get to that. And yeah. like <laughs> things like that are so, so yeah. goofy and just really like fun as a reader <laughs> to be like, yeah, this is a fictional story happening like in a book. And yeah, <laughs> something um, else uh, that really strikes me as this work in the, the history of comics and media is that to me, and this didn't really pop out to me until the movie version, but it is kind of the coming of age of the cultural literacy of video game references. Hmm. So there is no specific video... There's a few references to Final Fantasy, but uh, there's no specific video game that this is directly influencing, but just kind of the literacy of how a person interacts with a video game, with lives, with help, with coins. Uh, I hadn't seen this done before, the way that it was woven into the narrative of the work, but not in, like, a plot-centric way. Just kind of, like, super casually, where it's like, I beat the bad guy, now I get coins! And everyone's a lot like, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. And I can't think of another example where it's done as well as this, either. Mm-hmm. I, like, as someone who does not really play video games, like, it's very easy to read. Like, I, there was no point, even when I was, like younger reading this where it was like, oh, I'm confused by what's happening. It's just like, oh, this logic makes sense. <laughs> and that's what I mean by cultural yeah. literacy. Like, you're not a gamer. I don't consider mm-hmm. myself a gamer. But, like, it has reached a point of communication where everyone can read this and kind of understand where these tropes are coming from. When when someone explodes into a pile of coins, <laughs> you're like, oh, I, yeah, he's been defeated and the main <laughs> the protagonist gets coins. I love the way uh, you can sort of, like... It's very, like, of its time when it came out, because there's this line about, like, oh, it's not enough for... It's, like, just a couple cents short of, like, TTC fair, and you're like, oh, it's so much more now! <laughs> TTC yeah. has such a bad fair system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, and obviously I have huge nostalgia for this, because I grew up in Toronto, and, like, all the settings, like... Oh, yeah. Like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I mean, um, actually... Um, I want to spend a whole bunch of time talking about Toronto, but can we save that for a future episode? Oh, yeah, totally. Just so we can spend more time talking about it. Yeah. Because I want to get to the story here, too. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, sorry. Okay, put a pin in that. Okay. Mm-hmm. It takes place in Toronto. Yes. Toronto. Toronto, Canada. Toronto, Toronto as we say. <laughs> Toronto. <laughs> um, Anyways. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so I think... I'll, I'll try to summarize. Sure. Um so basically, it's about you. Kind of get introduced to this guy, Scott Pilgrim. He's 23, and you immediately find out he's not got a lot like going on. He's he's dating a 17 year old. Also, can, like, can we like sidebar sure. and talk about this? Because that's the one thing that I knew like going into. I was like, this is not going to age well, and I'm like, it's just not going to be good. And like the day before we recorded this, Jasmine retweeted on Twitter this tweet that said it, it's from I wrote it down because it's like this is topical and I have to talk about it Littles Twain on Twitter said Scott Pilgrim dated a high schooler while he was 22 he deserved to get his ass beat seven times and that's the chamomile <laughs> which is like yeah I, I don't know um, like I feel very conflicted about it because like just baseline if you're in your 20s don't date a teenager like yes. uh, especially like like, 19-year-olds still pushing it, but, like, 17, that's gross. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a huge power imbalance. Like, that's just really not cool. And, like, I think within the story, Scott is doing this weird fake relationship with Knives, because it's not like he has ulterior motives and he's mm-hmm. not trying to do anything with her. 
but I think he's trying to go to this quote-unquote safe relationship space to the last time a relationship was uncomplicated and he couldn't get hurt because mm-hmm. um, he'd just come out of this really horrible relationship. But, like, why should that be 17? Why couldn't right. we age her up to university? Right. Like, why right. does she have to be a high right. schooler? No, interesting. Um, the, the, this, I mean, on a certain way, I could see how the story could work with her being 20, and that would help a lot. Um, I... I would just, I mean, I will say now from rereading it, because I did keep that in mind starting it, I did really appreciate that he basically kind of just, like, meets up with her, like, he maybe holds her hand, and at one point, she like, she starts kissing him, but then, like, he's already like, oh, I gotta get out of this. So I think it was handled as best as it could It's be. not the worst case scenario, yeah. but I don't think that makes it okay. Right, yeah. To, to the work's credit. <laughs> yeah. I do think that from the gate, like, balloon number one is you're dating a high schooler. It is supposed to be creepy. Mm -hmm, It is supposed to be like, hold on, brother. Your life is going off the rails. (laughs) No one approves of this. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that's important, too, is that none Mm -hmm. of his friends are really like... I mean, maybe there's one sort of jerky person who's like, yeah, but generally, I think most of his important friends are like, dude, what are you doing? That's not cool. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think that's important, too. Um, and then I will say, I mean, again, like, it is what it is. Um, I think that, especially from reading Volume 2, I just really did enjoy Knives' growth as a character. And I think there was this really interesting moment where, you know, Scott is talking to her in the alley and sort of saying, like, I think you would have been better off without if I'd never kind of started dating you. And she sort of is... Saying like, yeah, well, it's I'm through the other side now, and I can't go back, and I feel terrible, but I'm also glad that I've I've kind of my eyes are open and I'm in this new experience, and so I really saw this as sort of a coming of age arc for Knives, where is that book two? uh, No, not book two yet. No, oh no, am I referencing? What is that? No, book book two. Book two, she does dye her hair. Or no, yeah, sorry, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. No, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah. I'm like, I'm getting ahead of myself. Oh, no, no, you're right, yet. sorry. Uh, sorry, um, listeners, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's book three. Jeffrey, we already warned we'd spoil things. Got ahead because he's a bad boy. Yeah. <laughs> but no, no, but I mean, like, uh, I think that even in book two where she's dyeing her hair, like, she's got this arc of being a 17-year-old, and she's acting like a 17-year-old, and I feel like she's... Like, I don't I still kind of have those memories of being a teenager and everything was so dramatic and everything was so awful and tumultuous. And, like, you get to your 20s and you still don't quite know what you're doing, but you get a little more of a handle on it. And I sort of appreciate that um, I feel like the progression in the story is, like, Knives is being a very authentic 17-year-old. And I feel like she gets a lot of personal growth as a character throughout the progression of this story. And so I think that if she didn't grow as much as a character overall, that again would also make this, I think, even more problematic. And, and so I like, I think that one thing about her being 17 is that I think I enjoyed seeing a 17 year old sort of trying to take those first steps into being an adult. And like, were she starting out at 22, you, Well, you sort of would have figured some of that out. So the fact that she's 17, you get to see someone really going from a teenager into, like, their 20s. No, I I know, like, again... No, I get what you're saying. I I really think you've said something interesting here, which is that it is a coming-of-age story for Knives. Mm -hmm. And we 
don't see a lot of coming-of-age stories for female characters. We see a ton for guys. And what's really interesting is I do think for a lot of women, coming of age is your first really awful relationship hmm. where your heart was like shattered and a guy was really shitty to you. That is coming of age for a lot of women. And what's really struck me about uh, Brian Lee O'Malley's work, which we explored more in seconds, is that I find that he's really empathetic to female characters. He writes female characters really, really well. Like Lost at Sea, um, which is his book that he did before Scott Pilgrim, like, resonated so deeply with me when I was a teenager, because it's, like, first person from, like, I think it's, like, a 17 or 18-year-old girl's point of view, and, like, at the time, it was, like, how did a dude write this? Like, how did he get to, like, my core so specifically? So, yeah, I mean, like, you know, 17 years old, but, um... I feel like this is worst case scenario for how this, <laughs> and not worst case, sorry, best case scenario for how mm-hmm. this could have been handled. It's not the worst case scenario. Yeah, yeah. I think okay, like so, one, um, one more thing I want to say about knives before we, <laughs> we move on, but uh, we I, were I supposed think, to summarize the story. Okay, but uh, yeah. no, we sort of did already. It's yeah. fine. Um, but like, I think as I get older, like the relationship between the seventeen-year-old and the twenty-year-old seems progressively more like a bad idea like really just terrible like rereading it now feel like looking at it i can say "Mm, that's really bad whereas before when i last time i read this like 10 years ago i was like okay that's kind of bad it's so funny it's so funny (laughs) but but look the one thing i'll say though is that i think uh like from my point of view i would like it if the narrative punished scott more for this Mm -hmm. but i do feel like the way the characters are written is very authentic. Like, all these 23-year-olds, they're, they know that this isn't okay, but they're kind of garbage 23-year-olds. Like, they're not <laughs> taking him into task enough of it because they're not actually that mature themselves. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's really funny, I wanted to say, like, reading this at the time and now reading it basically 10 years later. So we were all in our, the three of us were in our 20s, uh, mm-hmm. kind of contemporaries of the characters, and now we're all in our 30s. And I mm-hmm. think... It's funny because a 20-year-old can look at a 17-year-old and go, well, you don't know what you want. And then a 30-year-old can look at a bunch of 20-year-olds and go, well, you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, when, when yeah. I read this when I was like 14, both 17 and 23 seemed impossibly old. <laughs> and now I'm 23 and I'm like, mm-mm, would never date a 17-year-old. Like, don't do that. <laughs> so I think um, for all of our listeners, in summary, we do not condone... Dating seventeen-year-olds if you're don't older than eighteen. Or don't 19. date a teen if you're not a teen. Don't do it. Don't date a teen if you're not a teen. Yeah. Yeah. And then, oh, the other thing I wanted to say uh, to take off on what Kathleen said about uh, the way Brian writes female characters is like one thing I noticed, and I, we're going to talk more about the movie on some future episode, I assume. But one thing I, I noticed different from the movie and the book is how much of a better character Ramona is in these books. Yes. Like, she's such a believable person, yes. believable human being, where I can actually understand why she and Scott have a relationship. Like, they have kind of, they have a chemistry. Yeah. That this just is not and, there in the movie. And um, <laughs> and Kim Pine also is a real character who gets oh, to Kim do Pine's things and great. say things, Kim unlike Pine the movie. Is, well, I mean, the movie <laughs> was two hours. They had to make yeah. it sessions. And yeah. that's the difference yeah. between six books and yes. two hours. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is one of the major reasons that if you liked the movie and haven't read the books, it's worth reading the books. Oh, Absolutely. yeah, yeah, yeah. Kim um, gets way more space. I think even Knives gets way more space. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Envy gets way more space. Just like yeah. every everyone has space. Um. Like, we'll talk about this in a later episode. 
episode, but Stephen Stills. Um, <laughs> like, I have opinions about his narrative. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, like, just, you get more of the characters and it's more nuanced. One of the things that I really like in the writing of this book is the, like, bits of songs and recipes that just get thrown yeah. in. Like, I think yeah. that's a really fun element and like as a nerdy teenager I definitely just committed those lyrics to memory and sometimes <laughs> I get uh, like Launchpad McQuack or whatever stuck in my head and it's not like a real song and it has no tune but it's just like this thing I've like I, committed to memory that just gets stuck in my head some days. Um, and that's, it's I mean, got the chords though. Yeah, like, I was gonna yeah. say, that's, that's one of the things I really appreciated about that's one of the nice little touches in Scott Pilgrim is the things like when the band's playing, there's a little box with the chords, <laughs> and it just says, like, hey, kids, you can play along. <laughs> it, like, literally. Uh, sex hey, bomb uh, <laughs> are easy because they're kind of crappy. Look, the whole song only uses three chords. <laughs> four, four, time, rock hard, fast, and sloppy. Um, the uh, the um, Gilded Palace of the Flying Burrito song, um, uh, this is embarrassing, but, like, for years... Um, I just like how much that you know the names all these songs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was like what I was really into when I was a teen, but like, uh, Brian Lee Mellon's blog was my homepage on my computer <laughs> for like, <laughs> like, until I moved out from my parents' house, that was just my homepage, um, and at some point somebody did like record a version of that song and just sent it to him and he put it up on his blog, and I also like can still kind of remember the tune to that. It's amazing. And it was really sweet. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I uh, uh, as a big fan of cooking comics, who's made a few cooking comics in my day, I loved the vegan shepherd's pie uh, in volume two. I've not made this recipe, but I think I might now. Um, <laughs> and, like, I don't know, I just love that they carried the narrative through, but then they're also giving you the instructions on how to cook this at the same time. Yeah, which um, is kind of cute. And the whole, like, 20-somethings getting together yeah. to cook a meal because, uh-huh. you know... They've just learned how to cook. They just learned to cook, and they're all still sort of mostly broke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it uh, makes um, a lot of sense. Yeah, I like this. Stills being like, if you're under 23, get adult supervision. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Another thing I want to say is, like, because we did an episode on seconds, like, reading this again, you can see the sort of the progression in his skill level. Like, his ability to make comics is, like, head and shoulders above where it is in these books, but there's... I feel like there's also kind of a rawness to the comic mm. making yeah. in these, where like there's a lot of he he plays a lot around with the medium in a way that's so much fun. I will mm-hmm. agree with that. Like I, despite the fact that I I will agree that this is a a more raw version of his skill in cartooning, I still found myself quite struck with some of his choices of camera angle. Some of his like there were there's a scene where it's uh, Scott and Knives walking down the street and their shadow is cast in a very dramatic way. And I'm like, that's not a choice I would have made naturally. Hmm. I'm really, really impressed with this. Mm-hmm. So there is a real raw skill of cartooning in this uh, that that is already evident in this work. Yeah, uh, and it's it's worth exploring. Yeah. Um, no, I just I really like how he panels it. Um, mm-hmm. Like I don't have a good explanation or like hard facts to back that up, but I think that just like I'm rereading it, I was like, I really enjoy the way he lays out his pages and the way. He did, like, um, the way he does film conversations, I like, uh, where it's sort of, like, these rows and then just, like, 
a big black strip on each mm-hmm. row in between the two sides of the conversation. Oh, I don't oh, know yeah. why that mm-hmm. works, but yeah. um, is, I like it. Yeah, there's the, the <coughs> I wanted to talk about this particular part where it's Scott yes. talking to Envy. And the panel layout suddenly becomes this, like, nine-panel simple grid with a huge margin around it. And the choice of the shots in each panel is just bizarre and unsettling. It's suffocating. And you feel his his sort of internal tension about just having this phone conversation. Yeah, I totally wrote so down that good. scene, too. Like, yeah, you just, like, feel your chest contract. Yeah, like, something is terribly wrong, and I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like, I, something I just wanted to touch on is, I mean, rereading this, I was just really impressed with, um, the carefree way that he just immerses you in this kind of crazy world. Cause it starts out and it's like, Scott Pilgrim's dating a 17 year old and we've got this band and it's like, we're in Toronto and everything just seems normal. And then just sort of weird little things start to creep in and it gets to a point where, you know, like by volume two, like... There's a save point glowing on the ground, and like there's like once Scott's head just starts floating, and people are like, "What's that?" Like, "Oh, it's an extra life." Oh, I better get that. Like the skateboard, yeah, skateboard is it? Proficiency. Yeah, the skate. Yeah, skateboard proficiency. Every time. Mithril skateboard. My favorite part about this is uh, when they have the first fight with the first evil ex-boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And they were like, "Don't they know Scott's the best fighter in the province?" Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the world building supports it all. It's so great. The, like, yeah. Flashback where Kim gets kidnapped in high school. Oh, that's that's one of my amazing. favorite parts of the whole series. The it's one of yeah. the big things missing in the movie as well. Mm. Where that that never really comes back to it. But yes, it's like this is a world where this is normal, mm-hmm. and you're kind of slowly brought into it, which is something that I really appreciate. But it is done so fluidly and so naturally that it's it's really a yeah. pleasure to read. I um I can't remember who which interview this was. I think it was. With Brian Lee O'Malley, or maybe it was with Edgar Wright. I can't remember. It was one of them, but it was like talking about how the story is framed and those things. And I think Brian Lee O'Malley said that it was, or at least like an interpretation is that this is all from Scott's point of view. So this is completely how he sees the world. And maybe this isn't like, you know, true or anything, but this is his interpretation and how he processes things. And I think Mm. that's kind of an interesting way to look at it too. Yeah. 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 Um, That would explain how he can defeat someone and turn into coins. But I also enjoy not having to yeah. think about that too hard. Yeah. Well, so no, I mean, I think it's just like an interesting thing to consider, but you yeah. don't have to consider it. I, I would say that I think in some ways, uh, I could see someone writing a work like this that's got video game references and having it be really jarring and offsetting to your reader. And yet he's really successful in leading you on this journey where all this weird video game stuff pops up, but you don't like it, it just feels normal, and you're not something like, huh? Like <laughs> hipster demon girls from the sky? Wh- what? Like you're just kind of like, oh yeah, of course. Like sure, <laughs> like that fits in this world. And then, and sorry, one other thing I was just gonna say is, I I'm just rereading this. I was actually really impressed at the way he's able to sort of throttle back and forth between this really high octane video game like, kind of excitement and, and goofiness, and then immediately, like, throttle into, like, this drama where, like, you have, like, the when Scott and Ramona are on their first date and they come in from the snow and they're, like, wet and they go to make tea and then they just kind of, like, 
end up like getting in bed together, but then they don't have sex and they're just sort of holding each other. And it's just like this really sweet kind of romantic moment that would stand on its own in a dramatic story. And yet it's like nested in this like kind of goofy video game narrative. And I just think, again, the fact that he's able to throttle back and forth between these two extremes is, I think, a real testament to his abilities at telling a comic story. Yeah, I actually wanted to talk about that scene a little bit, because I feel like it's it at least really resonates with me. Like, I think it's kind of a unique scene in sort of like a romantic narrative. Like, you don't... Because it's, you know, like a very traditional romantic narrative. There's, like, the end game of they're gonna bone or whatever, and that sort of, like, comes up here, but, like... Uh, Ramona decides that she's like, no, I don't want to have sex with you tonight. And he's, like, totally okay with that. And it's just, like, very, very sweet the way it's presented and, like, very earnest of, like, mm-hmm. y- you don't have to do that. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I just found that, like, always really resonated with me as, mm-hmm. like, a very nice scene that you don't see that often. Yeah. The well, way it uh, it appeared to me was it's just such a very authentic 20-something yeah happening right it felt very normal it felt very real Mm -hmm. and uh i just it yeah it felt very natural and authentic and i i really really like that scene yeah and i see again like all the relationship stuff feels really authentic and yeah like it's hilarious because you have this he's got to battle the seven evil ex-boyfriends and every time seven evil exes although in the book they they say say seven evil ex-boyfriends sorry so he must have changed his mind at some point uh they did i noted it as well yeah. All right, but he's got to battle seven evil exes, so we won't spoil that, I guess. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, and they blow up into coins after he defeats them. And yet, like, you know, each time you are introduced to a boyfriend, you also kind of get this poignant sort of moment of like learning about that relationship. Mm-hmm. And again, if you're looking at it as Scott seeing the world through Scott's eyes, it's like it's almost like he's dating this girl Ramona. And she's just kind of recounting her romantic history, and then he's kind of on this fantastical, like, <laughs> thing where he's going to defeat them all. But it's like you're, like, each of the boyfriends, there's, like, a very real core to their relationship with yeah. Ramona. Like, it they feels very feel like real. real relationships yeah. for the time period when mm-hmm. they happen in Ramona's mm-hmm. life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, again... It's a female coming of age story because yeah. you're defined mm-hmm. by the shit relationships. <laughs> and, and, and again, I enjoy the fact that, like, I mean, uh, you know, uh, was it Pete, was it Patel, Michael Patel, yeah. Matthew Patel, Matthew Patel. Patel. Like, I like that Matthew Patel, the first evil ex, Ramona, basically is like, yeah, you know, I just kind of like was done with him and moved on, and it's <laughs> like, you know, she she's like dumping a few of them, but then she also gets dumped, and so it's like. It's just a very, you're like, yeah, it's someone's relationship history. Like, sometimes they break up with people, sometimes people break up with them, and sometimes you're, like, on okay terms, and sometimes you're, you're not on okay Sometimes you have an envy situation. And <laughs> um, and it, it's only, like, we only just sort of scratched the surface at the end of Volume 2, but you're introduced to Envy, which is Scott's ex-girlfriend. And, I mean, so Ramona's got her seven evil exes, but it seems like Scott's, you know, got an evil ex of his own uh, on the horizon. Got baggage too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which again, it's like everybody's got, you know, everyone's got stuff, right? Everyone's got a good, a good fleshed out sensibility. And everyone's got a backstory. Yeah, everyone's got a backstory. And, and Wallace Wells is hilarious. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. He's great. He's wonderful. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like Wallace a lot. <laughs> yeah. Now, how good he is in the movie is 
directly proportional to how much like he is in the comic. Yeah, yeah. I think that was he, like the maybe the... perfect casting. Yeah. yeah, except for the whitewashing, but like, okay. yeah, yeah. It's I guess it's Asian. Is yeah, yeah. I guess so. Um yeah. and yeah, but I mean, like the actor they have in the movie is good, but yeah. I when is he? I totally never knew if he was supposed. To, like I don't. It's hard to tell. The way they're drawn, Asian. I don't. The way the way they're drawn, I don't. Necessarily, immediately see what their ethnicity is like. I only really knew Knives Chow's Chinese because yeah. they call it out verbally. I so I never picked up, up on up, Wallace like, being Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I remember or, or Asian. Sorry. I remember it being a big thing. On the oh, okay. Cat. What we need is we need the color version too. We all have the black and white version. Oh, that's right. That's I've true. never looked at the. We've all got the OG edition. Yeah, because have all been got these. These are old. Uh, so it's pretty scuffed up. Yeah, I've got like scuffed up first editions. Oh, oh yeah, mine are print. like <laughs> destroyed by a teen version. My um, first volume was given to me at a convention once because the publisher was having some kind of party thing and this was way back when like conventions were small enough that they could just like give books to everybody at like after parties so i got free books sweet that's why i started reading it. oh oh i have like I, okay i didn't have time to go back to my parents place because they live way outside of the city to get this but um tcaf 2007 i got because i bought volumes one and two from brian Lee o'malley there um, and he gave me, he'd done an annotated Scott Pilgrim for volumes one and two, and it's this little stapled together zine that, like, <laughs> breaks down sort of, like, just why he was making certain choices and, like, what he was referencing and, like, these things. And um, it's not my parents' house, uh, as are most of my comics, but, yeah, maybe for the next time we record, I'll see if I can dig that up, because that was, like, well, I would read the books and I would be that, and, like, <laughs> it was, Yeah. And and we're so we we're not talking about place at all. Well, we we'll we'll save that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because I have a lot I want to say about it, and I'm sure you all do too. Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> I, I almost feel like we're kind of ignoring like a huge uh, plot point in even the first two volumes. Which well, is we've got that. we've got two more episodes. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I appreciate that it's CanCon and explicitly CanCon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, oh, and I will. I, I mean, again, it, it's a little thing, but I do really appreciate that when uh, Matthew Patel explodes into coins, it's very clearly loonies, <laughs> loonies and quarters, and you're like, yeah. those are Canadian coins. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like one thing that I felt was missing in seconds that is definitely present in this is place specificity. Uh, I, this was the series that convinced me of the value of having a story set in a real place in a real time and how much more of an impact that can make than having it in like a made-up city. Hmm. Interesting, because it does add a lot of color to the work. And yeah. I, I love the way that the backgrounds are drawn. They're very real. Yeah, like, you could go to the, these places. They I've have been all to the quirks as like, real homes. When we talk about place, uh, I'll talk about how I've visited almost all of these places now. <laughs> I also have funny <laughs> anecdotes for the places. Um, I used to live in the same neighborhood. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when, John? When are we going to talk about Well, I'll have to do it first thing next episode. Okay, fine. Uh, any other thoughts about the stuff that happens in these two volumes? Since um, we're running out of time here soon. So, the initial relationship, the initial breakup, the introduction to Ramona, uh, and the first date. I really liked the party. Oh, yeah. So, there's yeah. a party that happens, and it's a very typical kind of house party, which, again, like, looking back, it's just so... Uh, evocative of the <laughs> 20s age. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, it's not a raucous kind of like, we're parents out of town kind of teen party. And it's more of a mature, like, oh, let's get let's get everyone together and 
it's, you know, it's still very kind of low key. Mm -hmm. uh, I really appreciated that. And I also wanted to say that I really was struck by the authenticity of the voice, uh, not only for the age, but also this era. So at, at a certain point, like there's some slang that they use where if this had been written today, like we wouldn't use those language. Yeah, I wrote mm -hmm. down the R word. Yes, the R word. Oh, yeah. In my notes here. And it's, it's striking how common and like every other word, like some of those some of those terms were, and how quickly language can change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's like, so it felt very authentic, the way that their banter was, the way that their, you know, the way that their back and forth exchanges were, and like ribbing each other, it felt very authentic for 20s, and I, I really like the way dialogue is written. Yeah, and I, I don't know, I think like, um, overall, like I just appreciate the fact that in a lot of ways this is just like a melodrama about people's relationships, but instead of just having these like long arguments, uh, people like put on ninja outfits and fight each other in public. <laughs> yeah, it feels kind of <laughs> metaphorical, like not in a very specific way. But it feels like you could read it as a met metaphor for being in a relationship and like trying to figure out where you fit in it or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't want to try and well, figure it out too deeply. Well, I don't it, think it, it, goes could, that deep. it could also be a metaphor for how Scott doesn't want things to be serious. Hmm. That's a big theme in Scott's life, is that hmm. he's been kind of dragged into his 20s. Um, maybe not consensually, like he just kind of aged and he no one asked him if he wanted to stop being a teen. And but yes. he still kind of acts like a teen, you know? He still kind of like just drifts around and, you know, does whatever and wakes up at freeloading. Yeah. Somebody else owns everything in his yeah. apartment. He and, claims and, not to remember anything since high school. Right. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> and it just seems like a game. Yeah. Yeah. Changing gears, I was going to ask you guys about one thing I kind of had noticed. Um, I mean, I noticed the first time and, and like in a way, I think you could just dismiss it as part of the, the way the world is, but... Something I, I sort of thought about again, which was sort of a little strange, is Scott is dating Knives, and then he, in his dreams, Ramona is, like, running through his dreams delivering parcels. And he then meets her, and you find out that she's actually been taking a shortcut through his dreams to do these parcel deliveries on the on the sub subspace superhighway or what have you. So it's like he like, meets her through this weird idea of her being in his dreams, and then that's how he connects with her. And then also, after he connects with her, uh, bef like, before they actually go on a date, he gets the email from Matthew Patel about their impending combat. So it's almost like this relationship was, like, decided before it began. Hmm. Like, he's getting informed that he's going to be fighting these evil exes before they've even gone on their first date. And so... It just sort of seems like there's almost a weird kind of like causality loop <laughs> happening in, in the beginning of this story. And I don't know if that's just maybe a little bit of like kind of rough plotting in volume one or a little bit of just silliness in the world. Um, but it's sort of I, it's something I was hadn't given a lot of thought to the first time reading it. And now I'm kind of like, well, it is kind of weird that it's almost like this entire scenario has been triggered before it's even happened. Hmm. I didn't really clue into the causality issue there. I didn't notice it. Because uh, he, gets, he yeah. gets the email before they even go yeah. on their first You're date. right. It, it kind of it tickled me in the back of my head where it's like, oh, this is the email. It's like, oh, but they haven't dated huh. first. I, I noticed it. Yeah. Uh, and it is a little bit strange. And I don't know for sure what the point is, like what that is supposed to imply. 
Uh, it is kind of funny that Ramona is set up as a literal dream girl. Uh, <laughs> and I like that we've spoken before about how authentic and rounded Ramona is. It's like she follows a lot of the tropes of what you would call a manic pixie dream girl, and yet somehow is not. There's mm. some nice moments later on that we'll talk about when we get to them. But yeah. yeah. It's also interesting, there's a, a throwaway line where she kind of says, oh, well, I guess you're in love with me because I went through your dreams. Whoops. Where it's like, <laughs> it's kind of, based at least on that one throwaway, throwaway line, it's like she attributes this to like, oh, it must be my fault. I, I shouldn't have showed up in your dreams. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of like the opposite of a manic pixie dream girl in a way. True. I haven't uh, reread the later books, and I'm remembering from the movie that Gideon was ultimately sort of setting this up and I wonder hmm. if this whole thing was sort of a setup that went awry that's mm. interesting we'll have to reread those books and then reassess I don't mm. I'm not sure mm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> foreshadowing for a future yeah. episode yeah uh, yeah this is uh, I, I gotta say uh, this is a lot of fun uh, I'm sorry I got ahead of myself here but it's like once I started I just can stop. It's like it's so good. <laughs> well, next time we will read books three and four, and then stop, and yeah. then make sure that we are talking about the things that we are talking about. Yeah, I'm going to Although, actually, myself no, we're not points. because we're going to read three, four, yeah, five, and six yeah. for the way that we record. <gasps> oh. Oh. <laughs> You'll literally finish them in forty-eight hours. I probably. <laughs> I'll read them a few times to make sure I have a clear division. Right. Uh, any other? Thoughts about these books so far? I still recommend this series. It's so funny how, like, so many books, uh, especially when they are transformative of a medium, they do not stand the test of time. I still think these are pretty good. You know, I still, like, thoroughly enjoyed this book, yeah. yeah. I, I would be kind of curious um, the impressions of somebody who's 17 right now reading hmm. this. Uh, I'm curious if, if it would still connect if they didn't have sort of... like, Because for me, there's such a nostalgia factor as well. Um, but I do think this is a fantastic work. But I, w- I would be really curious if like a 17-year-old read this. I'd love to know their impressions. In fact, if you have any 17-year-old listeners and you enjoyed this book, let us know. Or if you hated it. Let or us yeah, know. if you had it. Yeah. Yeah. Just no, let us know what you thought. Because so many things, let us know your yeah. opinion. <laughs> so many works have been influenced by this now. We kind of discussed this a little oh, bit yeah. when we were discussing... Uh, Tetsuan Adam, Master Boy, uh, is how it's hard for us to get an impression of how groundbreaking this work was since everything now references it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this is no longer a... It, I still think it's a really distinctive and uh, unique book, but so much has come after it that it's no longer a, uh, a drop of water in a desert desperate <laughs> for it. Yeah, <laughs> no, really. I think like this is sort of at the height of the manga boom, but I think it's also the end in a way, of the manga boom, where, like, after Scott Pilgrim, there isn't really a clear distinction anymore between what's manga and what's not manga. Um, maybe there are people who will disagree with me on that, but it's all comics now, right? Like, the people who are making all the new, exciting comics come from the same place that Brian Lee O'Malley came from, where, like, you've read a lot of manga, you've read a lot of other comics, and your personal style is probably some influenced by both. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of us in this generation of uh, the manga ricochet, let's say, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. manga rebound. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you know, honestly, reading this again, it actually made me uh, start to think, man, I should start doing some more weird stuff with my comics. I should start <laughs> adding little character charts or just 
you know, little captions. I should start doing some stuff. <laughs> it's funny that it's a, like on what in one sense is a story about music, which is the hardest thing to draw in a comic because there's no sound. Um, but in every like, it's such such a comics centered story apart from that, where like it, I am impressed that someone managed to make a movie out of this, considering how much it waves the flag of this is comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and we will... Okay, so we're, we'll talk about Toronto in books three, four, and we'll talk about the movie in books five, six. How about that? That's the plan. Yeah. 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 All right, packed. Okay. <laughs> um, last thing I want to say is, uh, just to say once again how much I love the Kim Pine story. Kim Pine is the best. Kim Pine. Oh, Woo! yeah. <laughs> I'm glad the actress uh, that they chose for her, uh, I love her a lot. Oh, Alison Pill. Yeah. yeah. Oh, fun she's fact. A she went to stuff. my elementary school. Huh. Ah, obviously years before I went there, but yeah. <laughs> Small world. But yeah, I love Kim Pine as a character. I love that she gets way more space yes. in this work. I think her backstory is really interesting. I mm-hmm. think that the contrast between, you know, her perspective on Scott's relationship with her and how that kind of influences how she sees him. And it's like, it's funny because I get the impression that Scott's impression of the relationship is like, I moved away and it was over. And Tim's like, what the hell? And it's like, (laughs) then I, we're back together and we never talked about it. Like he even talks about like, Oh, I don't remember who I dated in high school. Like she's right there. (laughs) (laughs) And she brings it up to Ramona in a really mature way. Like, Hey, just so you know, we're exes. It's cool. I don't want it anymore, but you should probably be aware. Like, that's a very mature thing to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, okay. So let's do shout-outs. Mm-hmm. I'm Jeff Ellis. Uh, you can find my work at jeffreyellis.ca now. And uh, I'm going to shout-out uh, Moonshot. It was like an Aboriginal anthology. Uh, I just got my Comixology downloads of yeah. Volumes 1 and 2. So I, did I. I haven't read it yet. Yeah, have not finished reading it, but... So far, uh, worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah, so I, check I read it out. Volume 1. I haven't read Volume 2, but Volume 1 was good. Check it out. Actually, you guys, Volume 1 started with a uh, what was published in Daredevil originally, and I was going to put that forward as a potential trade waiters at some point. Uh, so, I don't know, maybe in the future. We'll see. Hmm. Uh, I'm Jam. Uh, not making work right now. Don't. Sh- it's okay. Don't worry about it. No, uh, <laughs> off. It's, it's quiet. It's quiet on the internet. It's wonderful. And uh, I would like to shout out a new comic from uh, a webcomics veteran, Danielle Corsetto, mm-hmm. who's known uh, best for Girls with Slingshots, which she wrote for like 10 plus years. She just started her new comic, uh, which is now Autobio. It's called Stuck at 32. And she is a master of the form, so I think it's worth following along. There's some beautiful comics up there already. Neat. I didn't know about that. I'll have to check that out. Brand new. Just like a couple days ago, launched to the public. Huh. Cool, cool. Right. Uh, I'm Jonathan. Um, I have work at uh, phobos-comic.com, but nothing new. And I'm going to shout out. I don't think I shouted this one out before. Uh, Stop me if I've actually done this before. But a while ago, I read Bride's Story by Kaoru Mori. Um, it's sort of a, well, it, it's framed as a romance, but I'm not sure there's actually any romance in it, um, considering the age difference of the characters, but it's, it's historical fiction set in Central Asia. Uh, I believe the characters are Turkish, maybe, um, like Central Asian Turkish. And, uh, it's just the, uh, 
love put into the research for the costumes and the settings and like the the how their society works is great and I love it to bits. Um, my name is Kay Gross. Uh, I have a webcomic that updates at lunarmalities.com and I'm bad at consuming media but I just finished playing a video game and I'm very mad at how it ended but it was a worthwhile experience because I thought it was constructed interestingly. Um, what was it called? Life is Strange? <laughs> yes, I was playing Life is Strange. Did you finish it? Yeah. <gasps> we can talk now! We can talk about it. I'm really angry because I didn't get the gay ending and I tried so hard to make it gay and I didn't get the gay ending and I feel like this is personally homophobic to me because all of my straight friends got I the gay I ending I tried so much you don't I'm not a straight friend this is oppression <laughs> anyways um, yeah that was an interesting game <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, next episode will be uh, Scott Pilgrim Volumes 3 and 4. We are continuing on our pilgrimage. Get ready. Uh, and... Um, Bring lots of quarters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, press play on the next episode to you have to fight all of us. <laughs> yeah, I need to see if I can find like sound effects. Yeah, save, to put in this episode. save it now. If anyone knows save, where to put save sound where effects. you are. Save where you are. Get to a save point and and be ready. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, the Trade Raiders is presented by Cloudscape Comics. Thanks to the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record in the Inspiration Lab and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at tradewaders.tumblr.com as well as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening.